morning for us i don't know if it's morning for whoever's listening whatever they're listening could be could not be i mean like a i don't even know if it's a 50 50 chance it's probably like a 30 30 30 <laughs> chance it's definitely too early for math yeah yeah <laughs> there's some sort of percentage some sort of things yeah <laughs> well i was trying to think of a segue from good morning into talking about late night, but I don't know that I can actually make that connect in a way that's going to be coherent. So, you know, let's just jump right into why do you write? (laughs) Yes. I tried. You did a good job of trying to set this up. Um, It's funny. So why do you write became why do you write late night, at least in my head, because we had a few more people on this panel and then it became a conversation with Greg Owinsky. But the panel itself came out of something we've talked a little bit about um, with this year's programming, which was once the writer's strike happened and we wanted to be compliant and we wanted to support writers, we were thinking what types of panels could we add and writing panels, craft panels specific to writers started to appear um, as one of, I don't want to say safer things because the other things were not unsafe, (laughs) but like really a clear like, put writers on a pedestal, talk about specific parts of writing and why do you write sort of came out of the idea of during the strike and all the things that writers are fighting for. One of them is the profession itself. Like, Mm -hmm. and ultimately why it's an important profession, why it needs to be protected, why it needs to be paid well. Um, because it's kind of at risk as a job if they're not paid well, if they can't get a living wage. Um, and when we put the WGA on strike panel together with Bo Williman, he is the one that suggested Greg. And it was specific that Greg was on the negotiating committee, but it was also that Greg represented comedy variety mm-hmm. subsect of writers, which I did not realize in the strike of it all, but just in general, how different their jobs are from other writers' rooms. I mean, I guess I know kind of from the movies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and the idea. There's some truth there. Yeah. And there have been conversations about some of the more popular late night shows and the history of late night. and But I hadn't really thought about how they were paid, which is my fault, but also makes sense because I don't think about how a lot of people are paid. <laughs> um, and so that is how he got to the festival. And then we asked him to do more things. And that is how we got this panel. (laughs) Well, what I love is that I think he was put on Why Do You Write early on in the crafting of the panel. But then as other panelists had to drop out for various reasons, which is funny, the strike made the panel and then also broke the panel. But when it came to just him and it really, I mean, it was you that was like, hey, let's make this a Why Do You Write late night in a way that's so interesting to me. And the thing that I loved about listening to it the most is that I am not a late night person in any aspect of the word. And, (laughs) but I've never been someone that watches late night. Mm -hmm. I do have a fear of stand up comedy, as we all know. And I think that there's. dig into what that exactly is. I know. There's something that is attached to that nature that you have with it. You're fine with them up there by themselves. Oh, yeah. Just when they break the fourth wall, I'm like, don't make eye contact with me, which is funny because in our panels, I'm like, no, everyone should make eye contact with everyone. So, you know, conundrum. I don't know. But in listening to this, realizing 
I don't want to say that I, I've never written off late night. I know that, I mean, just like I know stand up comedy is really hard and how much work goes into it. But I had no idea, as someone that doesn't watch it, how hard writing late night is and how quick it is mm-hmm. and how many revisions. I mean, at one point, not to give away too much of this panel, but Greg talks about the fact that if you, if someone says to you, if you're hired to like to write late night, they're like, go write 50 jokes. I'll see you in an hour and a half. That that should be nothing to you. If you're a late night writer, that you just go and do that. And that's just yeah. what you do. And he would stay home on Friday nights and just write jokes. Right. And I'm like, what a craft that you have created. And then just the speed at which you have to turn these things around. And as news is coming in and things are yeah. changing, even between morning jokes and evening jokes, I was like, this is baffling yeah. to me. It's funny. The thought I just had was in connection to other television. So I just watched the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And she gets hired as a writer on like a late night. Oh, it's like a Johnny Carson type show. And there is that. Like, she's the only girl in the room. And it's a break for 20 to go write jokes and, like, come back. And then they all pitch them. Kind yeah. Of thing. I, yeah. I, I am more of a late night person. Like, I find the late night, it used to be more, like, the late night wars a little bit more interesting. Like, Leno Letterman kind of a thing. And what household were you? Mm-hmm. Grew up in a Letterman household. <laughs> um, and now that has sort of evolved I don't know that there's the like king of late night the way there used to be. Obviously, Johnny Carson for a lot of people beyond that are many other people like Ed Sullivan, et cetera. But now there's so many like most television, it's diversified into so many different arenas. Jon Stewart changed that. Then we do still have the late night shows that are on the major networks, et cetera. But now there's a turnover of hosts there. Mm-hmm. There's like a whole bunch of stuff around it. So I also think... The evolution of late night is really interesting and the fact that this format still exists in a very big way. I think it's interesting. I think it's it also shows he talks a lot about it in the WGA panel as well. How, you know, if you think about scripted television, whether it's eight, ten, or twenty-two episodes, you have a job for those amounts of times and they structure this way differently. Like jobs for I think he said like sixteen, twelve or sixteen weeks or something like that. Yeah. At a time. It just all sounds And they also want to make them into day. They're like, just write for a day. And they're like, and then we'll just use your jokes for the next however many weeks. And that doesn't work. No. Didn't you used to, wasn't there a late night show that you would record and then you would watch it the next morning? There were a few that I would do that with. I did it with Corden a lot. I used to do it with Fallon. Uh, It was often driven by the guests, Mm. actually. I'm not a huge monologue person, which is a big part of a late night. writer's thing is getting the monologues and making them timely i would be driven a little bit more by the the interviews themselves um at the time and corden i liked for a really long time because i i did enjoy his like carpool karaoke and like various little segments um but i've kind of dropped off on her too (laughs) (laughs) i don't know would that be podcasts kind of replace it in some ways it's also a question about like short form interviews versus long form interviews. Like, why are you tuning in? Are you tuning in for that monologue? Like when I was growing up, like truly when I say I lived in a Letterman household, like my parents watched it every night and I would watch like probably just the monologue and go to sleep. Like I'm very aware, like for some reason became very invested in Letterman being better than Leno, um, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> it is funny when you look back at like, child. why do you like, have to choose? No. Um, which is really funny because then one of my first jobs in a, in the industry was with Betty Thomas, who directed 
The Late Shift, which is the story of Letterman and Leno with an HBO movie that is very good. Um, And it is an interesting, like, competitive moment. And then became really interesting later to me when Leno left and then he came back. And for a while he was on, like, a couple of nights a week. Like, he got a really weird – he was in prime time. Like, a weird thing happened. (laughs) Like, there has been this evolution of late night for a while that I do think is very fascinating. And what I think is interesting about this panel for us is, yes, it was born out of getting Greg – And it was going to be a panel that was more across different types of writing and why do you write? And then it became a conversation with him. We have wanted like either a single show's late night writer's room or a late night panel representing multiple shows like both cable, network, streaming, et cetera, for a while. So I do think this is a step in that direction because Greg has written for like just – it's like John Oliver and some – which is – And Stephen Colbert, which is also cool because he talks about the – you know, you're in one a night yeah, for however many days in a row and then one is a, a weekly week. and yeah. what that, the difference between what those also look like. Yeah. Well, the only other thing I wanted to mention before we go into it, because I thought it was a fun full circle, is that Greg talks about when he was at Second City that Tim Baltz was in the class ahead of him mm-hmm. and how much he looked up to Tim Baltz. And at Righteous Gemstones the night before this, Tim Baltz, who plays BJ on Righteous Gemstones, was not on the panel, but they do talk about him mm-hmm. on the panel and how much they love him. And I just think that it's really fun for people to infiltrate the festival, even if they're not there, in the small world of comedy. And also, you should watch that panel on YouTube because it's awesome <laughs> and really fun. You also had Tim join a member event of over I, a year ago. It also, and this is why you that's like probably, Righteous Gemstones and Tim. Well, it's not why I like, I love Righteous Gemstones. But Before I think that's why you started watching it. I started watching it. Was that why? I, I think it was. You do or, research for member events. I, and- but I couldn't remember if I started watching it and then asked for him or if they were like, we'll give you 10 balls. And I was like, oh, crap, I need to I watch this like show. The it could have been that. Like, anyway, fell in love. That. And I do have an obsession with 10 balls. So okay. the fact that he has was been, kind of there, was kind of there <laughs> and uh, want him to come to the festival and want him to be back in our ether. But it just made me really happy. Yep. Well, with that, enjoy this panel from season 12, Why Do You Write? And it is moderated by Sarah Petrie from the Alamo Draft House. Hey, y'all. Last day. Hello. How's everybody doing? Yes. Are you with us? Late nights. We're, we're going to talk about late nights. So it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, But yeah, thanks y'all for being here in this very intimate room. Um, You know, this panel has undergone a lot of changes in the last 48 hours. Um, And honestly, Greg, I'm really excited that it's it's not why do you write, it's why do you, Greg, write. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and specifically, uh, late night comedy. Um, So I think it's going to be kind of fun to focus in on that in particular. Um, So to get us started, if you don't mind, um, can you walk us through like how you got where you are? How like, because I'm I'm just curious, like, yeah, how'd you get there? Well, uh, in 1984, two high school seniors were friends and they were friends with benefits. And I'm the benefit. Uh, no, I, I, um, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, 
Um, a little more Southwest. I'd, I've had a long discussion of is Texas the South or the Southwest, or is it a border between the Southwest and the South? I don't know. Good question. But I grew up in Phoenix, and uh, I grew up in a uh, kind of weird, crunchy, hippie Arizona family. So it was like you didn't like the government, but you also wanted to help poor people, and you had guns. It was, it was very weird. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, a 48 state. I love it very much. But I, I grew up there with, with parents who were very much setting us apart from culture. Mm-hmm. So I grew up um, watching Peter Sellers and Hitchhiker's Guide and the Red Green Show and watching cartoons like Freakazoid and Pinky and the Brain. And these were the things that were presented as the good things and that the mainstream was kind of like not for us. So, <laughs> uh, and eventually that ended up including things like Late Night. Uh, and thanks to Arizona's weird time zone rules. Oh, Yeah. Late night starts at 10.30. So The Tonight Show comes on at 10.30. At 11.30, you get uh, Conan uh, when I'm a kid. So I was, so as I was in junior high age, I was old enough and I could stay up late enough that my dad and I would watch the first half of Conan every night. Uh, usually after watching Dragon Ball Z on Toonami. <laughs> That's a cool so double cool. feature. It's yeah. very cool. Um, but I grew up in a family that my parents are not comedians. My dad uh, ran a fertilizer factory. That was my first job. And my mom is a nurse. And, uh, but they loved and appreciated comedy and a comedy that was original. I, I, <clears throat> one of the things that I don't think they knew was helping me become a writer was that um, when The Tonight Show was on, I wasn't allowed to stay up all the time when I was younger and watch it, but my dad would take the picture knob on the TV, this is old televisions, the pic- <laughs> take the picture knob and turn it down so the screen would be off. So I would listen to the monologue for The Tonight Show. And by doing that now, I realized I was not focusing on the images or the laughs or the audience. It was just listening to the pattern of the jokes over and over and over again. Um, and so you'd hear a stand-up that way. You'd hear monologue. You'd hear sketch that way. Uh, and it, it's teaching my brain how those jokes work over and over again, watching Conan, uh, all of that stuff. So I grew up loving late-night comedy, both for the sensibility of being the weirdo in the back, getting to tell jokes, and also, I think, just because I, I loved writing and creating things. So that was what I think set me off into wanting to be somebody who writes late night. I know that none of that is about the actual career itself, but that's no. But I, I think it is. It's it's so great that your parents, you know, weren't that wasn't like their realm, but they still they were into it. Because um, I think that's the way it is for a lot of us. Like, you know, I grew up like obsessed with SNL, and like, you know, my parents aren't into comedy either, and they're actually like very conservative. Um, but for some reason, like, I was allowed to watch SNL. Um, so I think those seeds, like your parents being into it and launching your curiosity, like that's really cool. I also have other questions about daylight savings time in where you grew up, but we don't have to get into that right now. <laughs> it's so confusing. Um, okay, so then let's fast forward a little bit to when you were, I don't know, going off to school, thinking about what you wanted to do when you grew up. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, late night writers, a lot of writers in general, but you know, late night writers have started in something else and then end up in late night television. Um, it is not the kind of thing that you set out usually as a freshman in college to be like, I'm going to write late night TV. And everyone's like, great, here's the degree to do that. Um, because late night is about the world and the references from the world, you find people who have tons of different experiences, lawyers and doctors and volunteers and nurses and all sorts of different things. And so I went to uh, college for a theology degree, got a bachelor's in theology. Oh, wow. um, and then I went to New Orleans um, in 2000, 
2005, 2006. Not a great time in New Orleans. Uh, nope, nope. And I was there studying to be a priest. And oh, so wow. I, I moved there. I would, you know, classes in the day and relief stuff and, and, and doing all this stuff in New Orleans to kind of um, recover and ended up, uh, obviously not, I, I did not take. I, I got married. Uh, we really? both, really? me and God both agreed, not a good idea. And, and so I, um, but I had started writing and making videos when I was there. I was, I was, you know, making stuff and realized that's what I like to do. And so that I, as I went through the rest of my career doing writing and editing and working on review sites and all this stuff, I knew that I wanted to keep making things. And so I got to a point in my life where I was like 25. I'd been writing and a lot of stuff for other people. And I went to a Carmelite monastery for eight days, did a silent retreat. Uh, and I will say this, I really like the Carmelites, too silent. <laughs> like when I go on a silent retreat, you got to chant. I got to have some kind of soundtrack. I need something going on. And this is just like, just silent the whole time. I mean, is it, sorry, is it ever awkward? Like, like when I, when I first saw The Quiet Place, you know, the movie, um, like my husband, who I think is in the room, was like, but what if you have to fart? Well, I mean, the, they have very heavy robes. Okay. So I think that okay. takes care of that. Okay. It just is a self-contained situation. Okay, good to know, good to know. Uh, but I, I went in and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, I, and so I ended up coming out of that going, well, I'm going to go to Chicago and I'm going to sign up for Second City and I.O. Nice. Like most comedians do, that's how you decide. And I, uh, and I moved there not knowing anybody. Started there, started writing and uh, performing, went going through Second City and Improv Olympic. And um, that set off kind of, that was the the impetus of learning how to do it, taking it seriously, starting to make my own shows there and yeah. moving through. Can you speak a little bit, because I think, you know, Second City is, you know, so iconic and um, I'm always so curious about what it's like. Like, who are your cohorts? Like, is there anybody that you still work with or associate with, like, coming out of that? Yeah, I mean, there was a... Um there have been so many people. When I was there, kind of you think of it like there's the main stage and the, and the ETC, which is the second stage. And those are like the 12 biggest names in Chicago when you're there. And so we had, you know, um, uh, Tim Baltz uh, was there and Katie Rich was there and Sam Richardson was there and uh, Tim Robinson. And th those were the people we looked at like, oh, my gosh, they're so good. And I mean, we were right. They're very good. Yes, yes, very um, good. But the people that I came up with, was a, there was a very... Uh, big group of incredibly talented black comedians there. Um, Chris Red, Ashley Nicole Black, Namdi Ngwe, Patrick Rowland, Shantira Jackson. Um, there's probably some more people I'm forgetting, I apologize. But, but there was a big crew of us that were there that are now all working together. Um, because it is like a school, so you're just there every day, working on sketches, coming up with sketches, coming up with jokes, going to class, doing a show, watching a show. It just becomes your whole life. Yeah. I mean, it's down, yeah, that's, I mean, but I think that's necessary, right? Because that's how you kind of grow, like, just like school. Um, it's one of the things I love about the theater community and, and, a, and starting there is we were so bad, but it wasn't <laughs> online. So you can't find the first five years where everything I did really, really sucked. Thank God. I just did it, I got better, and we moved on. <laughs> and that's what I tell a lot of young writers and comedians is it's about getting better. It's not about putting all that stuff up now. Wait till you have learned some reps and you believe in it before you put it online. Yeah. Um, so then, then take us through what was your next step? What was the next chapter? Um, I... I uh, I moved to Los Angeles. I, I left Chicago. I was at a point where I had been teaching there, 
but you know, I wasn't going to get a TV job there. So I moved to LA uh, and I got, after a couple attempts, I, I was selected for the NBC late night writers workshop in 2016. And that was a workshop done by um, uh, an incredible crew of people that were working at NBC at the time, Karen Horn, um, who's done an incredible amount of diversity initiatives, and Grace Moss and Britta Wanger. And the, the three of them had created a program where if you loved Late Night and you wrote a great packet and you were really dedicated, you went to 30 Rock for a week and all of the different people at the shows came and said, here's how we do our job, here's how we do this. That is awesome. And then you did notes and you got notes back from showrunners and execs about, well, we wouldn't do it this way, we wouldn't do it this way, but we would do this. So you were getting real experience and also you know, getting that first credit, which was so big, getting your name anywhere in a trade that said, oh, this person exists. And that was the real jump for me. And then I got that, that was a real buoy to confidence. And then two years later, um, I, after applying to, I think 14 different shows, um, you through a packet process, which is a whole other conversation, but um, I got the call from Colbert and they said, um, you're hired, we liked your stuff, you have eight days to get here. And I was like, cool, I'm in LA, so let me throw everything in a storage unit. <laughs> and I moved to New York. I mean, I think the fact that there's a workshop like is incredible because again, like, I don't know about y'all, but like I didn't until I read your IMDB profile, I didn't know that was a thing. And it's like, well, of course it is, but it's such a specific way of writing and uh, such a specific like group. I don't know. It's like this is like I'm kind of nerding out right now. I don't know if you can tell. Um, so knowing like going through that workshop, how do you go from there to like just instantly being with the writers and like just being thrown into it? Like because it sounds like it's a pretty intense schedule. Or yeah. Is it? When you come in to the first day at almost any of these shows, you have to remember that there's not really an onboarding process because they have to make a show that day. So it's your first day, but they still have to make a television show by dinner time. So you show up and it's like you, it's like, okay, you're going to write with him. I'll see you at 1230 when your script's done. And you're like, okay. And then that person tells you, normally we do it this, they basically, usually someone is nice and they're like, you don't have to do anything today. Just <laughs> watch. Just watch what I do. Also, if you're new, also if you're the veteran writer, you're like, great, I get all my own jokes in today because they're new and they're scared. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sit back. I'll show you how to do it. Yeah, don't worry about <laughs> it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, you know, but then you start to learn the ropes. It's one of the things, you know, we've talked about a lot in, in the contract negotiations is the idea that we're fighting to have our 13-week contracts in streaming. You know, because since Late Night was in black and white, you worked 13 weeks at a time. Then you're let go. You have to get a new option picked up. So you can at least go tell your spouse, hey, we have three months of job security. Um, wow. And, uh, and that for us is like a lot. <laughs> And the studio's option is not that. Uh, so they've set it like a day rate, maybe so they can come up and be like, what about two weeks at a time? I'll be like, no. So 13 weeks for us is very important, but part of that is because, you know, you'll hear from any veteran late night writer, it takes 13 weeks to even know what you're doing. The fear, yeah. because you come in and yes, you're an aspiring, it's like being, I, again, it's like basketball. You're in the NBA and then you go, everyone's good and everyone's <laughs> fast and they all know what they're doing and they're, and uh-oh, I used to be the best. I was the funniest person in my sketch group. Now I'm just a person here. And so it takes time to learn the rhythm of the show, the voice of the show, which jokes work. And also the real human parts of Late Night, which is like, this host doesn't like jokes about this thing. Or this host thinks that this kind of prop is gross. Or this joke, oh, wow. this host doesn't like saying this word this way. 
you know? Um, so you, so there's all these little things that you can never know when you're applying to the job. And then you get there and you go, oh yeah, there's all these other things. Or the network won't let us make fun of this kind of car because it buys a lot of ad slots. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well now I got to find a different funny car name. There's so many kind of blue collar realities to it that you learn that it takes you that, that whole first cycle. You're just one learning and two thinking, I'm going to blow this. I'm going to get fired. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. They're never going to bring me back. You know? Well, now I want to know that word. You were like, there was a word. That... I cannot. I can't. That would be okay. selling out. That would be okay. selling out a, a, one of the great hosts I've, I've worked with. But it's, it's, there are, it's those weird realities of things of where you, um, you, re- you have to remember that hosts are people. Yeah. It's hard to remember that even when you work there, you know, but it's that idea of like when a, when a guest comes on, sometimes that's their friend. Sometimes it's somebody they haven't talked to in a long time. You know, they, it, there's all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, do you mind taking us through like, I don't know if there's like an average day, but like what's sort of a typical day? Like whether it was with Colbert or with John Oliver, like what was that like? Yeah. I mean, uh, they're both different. I, I can think I can run through them both relatively quickly, which the the five day a week show is like you get there in the morning you pitch your jokes to the head writers the jokes that they think will work go to the big meeting where everyone because everyone has to start immediately so every joke that you have that has a prop that has a guest star that has a graphic element that has anything in it we have to start producing right now so all of the everything for the day gets pitched in maybe like a nine o'clock ten o'clock meeting then that gets greenlit or not, those departments run off to start doing that. There were days, I mean, there was a day we built a hot air balloon with a mustache that was supposed to fly into the sky. <laughs> but it was like, at, at, and it was like at 9.30 you said, well, there's this funny mustache. And then like he points at it and it flies away. And then at 2.30 at rehearsal, there was a hot air balloon with a mustache oh. on it. And you're, the, the power, the yeah. power. And also the, the incredible team at <laughs> yeah. a late night show. It's 200 people just grinding as hard as they can. Um, so, you know, in the early morning, you pitch it, everything goes. Then you have a window between that meeting and lunchtime where you have to write your jokes. So that either means that you're writing 50 to 100 monologue jokes if you're at a traditional mono place, or you are writing like three to five minutes of monologue chunk if you're maybe at like a Colbert or a Daily Show. You know, those are kind of the two different versions of those shows. One where I'm telling you a whole story and there's jokes, and then the other one where we're just ripping through two-liners over and over and over again. Either of them, you're basically spending that late morning just writing as fast as you can because around lunchtime they say, okay, and they pull out the stuff they like. They turn that into a rehearsal monologue around 2, 2.30. They rehearse it to see how it feels because that, again, is the first time the host has seen it since 9 in the morning. So then they come back, they read it. Oh, I like this, I don't, we're long, we're short, we gotta change this. Also, one big thing that happened, especially during the Trump years was, oh, the news changed. Uh, yeah. So it's like Trump said somebody was a dumb goose and now he said that all gooses should be executed. So now we have to rewrite the whole thing. Thanks, Trump. Cool. Yeah, so Thanks. there was a lot There was a lot of that where things would change and change and change. And then um, as you finalize things and get things ready, you continue to rewrite the show until the final rewrite, which happens up till about 10 minutes before the show starts. Wow. Um, there is a, uh, in most of these shows, you have a final rewrite where you, as the, the top level team and one or two staff writers are rewriting the whole show top to bottom um, and are going through it with fine tooth just to let's fix this. Let's also, especially when you're doing political comedy, you know, you're thinking about, are we going to get sued for this joke? Are we saying something that's technically not true or gray? You've got lawyers, research team, people in there. This word doesn't mean this. It was actually 42% and not 39%. All of that stuff's coming in as you're also trying to figure out how, if it's the funniest it can be. 
And then you seal up the script, the audience is already loaded in, the host is already in hair and makeup and costume, and you give them a high five, and then they walk out and the show starts, and you go home. I'm exhausted. That's, and that's, that's, you do that uh, four to five times a week, uh, and about 250 to 280 times a year. Easy crazy. So it's, the, it's, it's a great way to start working in television because everything after that seems so easy. <laughs> I worked at a scripted, uh, for a scripted show, um, and... I said, they asked for a script back, and I said, how long do I have? And they said, two weeks. And I said, ah, so I'll start in 12 days. Because, <laughs> man, if you, when you work in late night and then someone gives you no pressure, it's like, I can't, I, this is, I don't, I'm not scared. It, you, have, you have to feel a little scared, right, that it's not, you're not going to get it done. That's, that's the mentality that keeps you in late night is, um, is that, that sense that the amount of time does not register in your brain anymore. You know? Yeah. Well, and then, like, you know, looking at the way, the structure of the Colbert show versus John Oliver, um, can you speak a little bit more to, like, you know, with John Oliver, it's like tonight's top story is um, what is it like working on a story like that? And also, you mentioned, like, the researchers, the fact checkers. Like, I would love to hear more about how you interact with those teams, too. Yeah. And especially at, at Last Week Tonight, the um, those, those teams are... Um, they're, that kind of show that's a research show, whether it's Last Week Tonight or any kind of longer essay-based show, is you have to build a logical essay first. You have to build an argument. And, and, you know, and it might start from, I'm frustrated with this, but then you have to build a case that is relying on data points, on facts. You have to lay, you can't just say, you know, like, they're using parking tickets to persecute poor people. Okay, who gets parking tickets? How much are they? How do they pay them off? What is it, you know? You're going through and building this whole case. Then, because it is ridiculous and unfair and it makes you mad, then you start hanging the jokes on it. Then you find some city councilman who was like, we should put the pores in a meat grinder, and you spend two and a half minutes just railing on them, you know? Because <laughs> uh, you're like, this is fun. <laughs> so, so that changes because those are also, yeah, those are, you're taking much more time to write a long-form piece in any sense, whether it's at Full Frontal or Last Week Tonight or, uh, you know, at any of these places. But you are, you're taking the time to build that argument and you have to know the argument, even as the writer. So you start to learn the topic really well. You start to know the parts that really get to you, the parts you want to point out. And so um, it is, it is a, a slower pace, but you're also doing a bigger lift in that you have to, in your head, have like a 28, I'm looking up because this is how I do it in my brain, but it's like you have like a 28 minute monologue and you're going, okay, well the middle part, we have to lose this video clip because you can't hear the sound well. So that's going to come out, which means the points are going to come out, which means the jokes are going to come out. And now this moves down. And now we have to move this up so that it fits. You know, and you're just, and so there's like 10 people in a room all doing, just all sitting there like, yes, yes, okay, okay. You know, <laughs> so it's a different kind of skill. And the time pressure becomes the same because, again, you, you're working on it up until the last second. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a different kind of pressure because you also are thinking this is our one shot to make a big argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for you, um, you know, as a writer, do you do you still feel like late night as a like you were kind of talking about this before we walked in, but do you still feel like that's a platform that gives you a voice for um, things you think are important or that you know you you want to bring into the sort of cultural debate or or has it changed? Well, I, I think uh, it was an it's. 
there was a shift. There's all these generational shifts of late night as it go, like as it moves forward. You know, the the Carson years and you know Dick Cavett and Jack Parr. It's very much a dignified guy having a conversation, or I'm like a nice club comic, and then you get Letterman and Conan and this kind of weird. I'm the weirdo in the back. It's a little anarchist. It's Dadaist deconstructing things, and I think that what you saw with Conan and Letterman. I'm gonna get very like late night. Let's late do night it. theory. This is why we're here. So you see, you, you have to think about both who are the comedians who are doing this, but who are the people at home watching and who are those audiences and what do they want? It's all of us, but it's thinking about like an 1130 show that those people have just watched the evening news and the evening news is scary on purpose, but it's this, whatever city you live in, downtown is horrible. It's full of murders and death and everything. So, and these people got shot and these people got stabbed. Let's not talk about the city council and what they were doing. Let's talk about the murders and those people immediately when that ends, want to watch something that says, it's fine. You can go to sleep. It's okay. It's not that bad. 1230, those people didn't watch the news. They were out doing something. They came home and they're like, oh, weirdos. Cool. <laughs> Let's be weird. So even in, that, even in that difference, you start to develop two different sensibilities of comedy. But what those people were doing at 1230 was looking at 1130 and saying, I want to break this. Because Carson and Leno is so well-established as as upstanding guy, nice guy, doing silly jokes, and how can I break it? And Letterman is so specifically taking apart that, that idea of that serious guy, you know, doing stupid human tricks, just trying to break the form. I would say, and this is a guy who doesn't have a show, would love to at one point have a late night show, that we have maybe reached a point at which it is time to break the form of a smart guy at a desk telling you something is bad. And that's for a couple reasons. One is, I think we have uh, exhausted it. I, don't, I think that we have done that in a moment where there was a literal coup attempt of a bunch of white nationalists. I don't think it's going to get crazier than that. So if we covered that, I think we've tried the form, and it's been cool and good. I mean, I was working it last week tonight when Jan 6th happened, and, I just remember, and we were off that week, and I remember thinking... I probably have to start working today. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm just going to start writing jokes. Um, but, but, but also, so I think it's been done for a long time, and I think audiences end up wanting something new. But I also think that there's a desire to break the form because what it was presented at for, for half a decade was, and I say this very genuinely with, this is in no way a disrespect to the great hosts that have been part of this era because they are funny and good, and I know some of them personally, and they're, it's great and they are legends of comedy. But we had an era where uh, America was under attack by white nationalists, by crazy men's rights activists, by all these people, and the people who were warning us it was dangerous were the people who were at least risk, rich white men. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole generation of people saying, it's really scary and dangerous out there, from people who, for them, it wasn't dangerous. Yep. And I think there's a disconnect in that emotional level. When Jon Stewart was talking about 9-11 and, and doing that era of Daily Show, he was talking as an American to America from inside. I'm in the house and the house is burning. And there's a level of being at risk that, that adds an emotional weight to those arguments when you talk about race, when you talk about attack on women's rights, when you talk about those things. And I think that that being lacking has led to a, a little bit of distance in audiences in that format. Because now you're academically telling me something is bad. You are telling me it's bad for black people. But if I'm black, I know. <laughs> I'm alive. So I don't need 30 minutes to tell me the police are bad. I'm here. 
So I need you to do something else. And so that means that whatever we do, I think the conversations have to start later. A conversation about police has to have the first sentence be, we know the police were old slave patrols, right? Yes, we all know. If you didn't know, catch up. We're moving forward. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing has to change. But I think what you're also going to see along with a new, diverse, advanced conversation in Smart Late Night is the idea that for a lot of us, we want to be stupid again. I love it. Because... Uh, I firmly believe that black Americans have the ability to hold joy and sorrow at the same time in the same heartbeat. That comes from all the way from spirituals, you know, working in cotton fields. And so it is very possible for me to do something like, I don't like that police have automatic rifles. And for my solution to that to be, the police should only be allowed to use Ninja Turtle weapons. (laughs) And you like have to work up to the sword. The sword is the top. You start with the nunchucks because I bet you don't know how to use them. <laughs> and that, to me, is, is at least for me and the little weird crew of weirdos that, that I am working with, that's the goal, is to say we know things are bad, but let's laugh because we can't fix it. We just write jokes. Let's laugh because that laughter, that joy, is a weapon in the fight against fascism, in the fight against the people who are trying to take our country over. That joy lets you get up another day and keep going. Yeah, yes. I mean, I'm glad we have more time, but I also feel like if the panel ended with that, it would oh, still gosh. be... Uh, no, I, all I was thinking at that I'm is like, I'm going to get... You just blew the ending, man. I'm going to get roasted because uh, by all the other late night writers uh, who are like, wow, serious guy over here. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very Studio 60 right now. <laughs> you know, when Wes Mandel did his monologue... <laughs> I was in the back saying he's not wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you mind speaking to, I mean, speaking of just like the joy of humor, like, can you share, are there any favorite bits that you haven't written um, that you've seen on whatever shows, whether you're growing up or, or just recently that you were like, they nailed, they nailed it. They nailed it. There was a, a bit that Colbert did before I got there which it was either before I got there or I just didn't write on it. I don't know. I didn't do it. But there was a story about how a student had graduated summa cum laude and the Walmart that had made the cake had not, not put the middle word because they had thought it was dirty. So it just said summa laude. And so what Stephen did was they made cum cakes, which were cupcakes that just had that word on them in frosting. And because it was about a Latin word, he got them on air and took a bite out of one. And I'm just like, that's it. You beat them. You beat the network. You got like that. That's a Hall of Fame bit to do that. I love that story. And I'm glad you said that because, yeah, what what has it been like navigating the censorship and like the studio, you know, like... I mostly just I'm aware of like some of the Saturday Night Live stuff they have to like skirt. But like for you, like writing for late night, what are some examples of where you just were like, why can't we get this through? I would say um, you. um, Let me think. Uh, There's (laughs) things I don't want to say in this mic that I've suggested. (laughs) Um, There's plenty of uh, solutions to political problems you cannot say on television. Uh, Yep. There's, you know, but I would say another thing is that just the idea of like when it's things you never saw coming, like you can't show this frog pooping like and you're like, 
man, I never like, and you just are caught off guard because you're like doing all these other political things. You're not getting sued. You're saying this right thing. And they're like that bit where the frog poops and jumps away. You can't show the frog poop. And you're like, I, what? I don't understand. It's on, this is on so late. Like this is not even a kid could watch. And so it's those weird things where you, you get these notes. It's not really about what the political message of what you're saying or any of that, but these ideas with things where it's like, you can't say, you can't show this or you can't, yeah, you can't talk about the company that way. You can't uh, do that. That throws you off. I think for SNL, one of the benefits of being live is like a lot of times you can just do it. <laughs> they can't, they can't stop you. They could find you afterwards, you know, but yeah. Are there any like hills you've died on? Like you were like, I, this joke is so like, it has to make it. We have to figure it out. Or were you just like, it's not going to work? I've probably had hills. I would say most of the time, there have been hills that I've died on, and then also the joke has died. Oh. So I was like, this has to be it. This is going to be so funny. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be so good. And then you watch it at, at taping, and you go, uh-oh. <laughs> I died for nothing. Uh, oh. They're going to remember that. Because you, when you see what happens is this, and you don't see it unless you're like working there, where it's like the joke happens, it gets a medium laugh, and you see the host go, hmm. You see them remember that you convinced them. And you're like, oh, I wish I had done that. <laughs> yeah. But there's no, greater, there's no greater teacher in late night writing than hearing somebody not laugh at your joke. Because it takes away, every late night writer is like, my jokes are good. That's why I write them. And then when they don't land, you start to go, huh, okay, I should probably start thinking of these more critically. And what is the sort of collaboration with the other writers like? Are you guys like constantly kind of sharing and getting feedback? Or, I mean, I, I was thinking about when you're talking about the daily schedule and how fast it is, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time for like, what do you think about this? Well, there's a lot of collaboration. When you're writing mono, like just mono jokes, two liner jokes, that's really somebody might write one and I might say, oh, I have an alt, like we maybe we say a different lake because the name is funnier or we tweak it this way or, you know, we're all collaborating that way. One of the really cool things that, that, uh, it, that's come out in the late night community is this program called Scripto, and it's a co-writing software that Rob Dubbin created with Steven. And um, it, it's like a Google Doc or Final Draft, but uh, smashed together. So right now, for the strike, we are making a uh, late, night, late night videos for the strike. For, it's a show called Contract TK, and TK means we'll fill it in. So it's a, it's a show called Contract TK that's on YouTube and on social media. Um, and we have a, we have a team of 35 people, all volunteer, all unpaid. We have no budget. We are all just doing this because we want to win the strike. We have a volunteer crew, Jake Plunkett, who's this incredible SNL and Colbert director is directing and EPing it for us. But we have all these people in these different time zones and all these writers in different spaces, and we need to be able to write together. And so that, that collaborative nature is so mandatory because we're going in and being like, we are still under a time crunch. We're making the show for free, but I need to put four people in here and, and to have them bang out 12 jokes and they can all write together and, and to not be precious, to go, okay, my idea turns out, my joke was just a jumping point for two more jokes. That's fine. I'll come back later. And to really not get territorial over your jokes because the goal is that the last script is the funniest. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, I know you were on the panel, uh, was it yesterday, about the strike? And um, I don't know how many of you guys were there, but... Oh. Nice. Um, so, I, you know, and I, so I wasn't obviously on that panel with you, so if you don't mind, I was just going to ask you, like, how, how are you feeling about, like, do you feel like there is a different vibe, like, 
across the country versus the last strike? Like, are you feeling like there is more support or, or, or not? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I say it all the time, um, but it, we are in a labor moment and we have created, not we the writers, but the people of America, this is a labor movement and it is uh, across the country. And so we have had support up and down the industry, but also around the country because, um, you know, the fight to not have a tech company put you in 1930s labor conditions so they can get more stockholder money, that's true for us and Amazon and everybody at a Starbucks that's unionizing and, and everywhere. Um, you know, I mean, I think about like the idea that corporate greed destroys creative businesses or people who are passionate about their careers. I think about what happened, just happened with Walmart and people who had sold eggs, you know, like the destruction of all those local farms that I grew up knowing where they had to sell out and they don't have a business anymore. And so it's not a unique thing to the industry, but we have an incredible amount of support, but also because of fans of TV and people who know television, it's a lot harder for the studios to come out and, and gaslight everybody. This yeah. is a great deal. This thing's so great. They're too rich. They're too greedy. Well, now people know how TV works. Yep. And so even the people who watch are in solidarity because they understand. So, yeah, I think we're, the, there's an incredible amount of, of solidarity that I think probably has caught the AMPTP off guard. I mean, obviously that's great to hear. Um, yes, yes. Awesome. So looking ahead, like assuming um, everything works out how y'all very much deserve it to work out, um, what do you think, like when you were saying like at some point you'd like to have your own show, um, what would it look like? Like are there things structurally you would change, things you would want to keep? Like would it be a mishmash of different other shows you've worked on? What would it be like? Um, well, I will say, I just have to preamble this with sure. that... Um, if you weren't at the thing at the panel yesterday, like what late night writers are asking for is that we do the same thing we did in 2014 for episodic TV, which is to stay streaming and TV are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Please pay us the same because we're making the same shows. Yep. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what any other sector does with late night. It doesn't matter what any other contract does with late night. We write the same shows. We got to get paid the same. Um, and I only say that because if we don't get that, if this is a situation where they try to strong arm us out or crowbar us out or say, we're not as important as other sectors, there won't be late night. There just won't. And I, and, and I, the reason is this is you see a lot of articles that are like late nights dying, late nights dying. There's no more late night. I can tell you from being in negotiations with them, they want to make more late night. They just want it to be for almost free. And so there will be more late night coming because maybe you don't have an audience of 7 million people, but what if I have three different shows that each get a million people? Okay, I'm, you know, there's, yeah. there's going to be more late night. There's going to be more soaps. And so uh, we have to win or I won't have a show because I won't be able to feed my kids doing the show. The, for me, this is non, take off my guild uh, uh, hat for a second out of my chest. <laughs> and... And for me, the thing that I've always loved since I was in Chicago is the idea that there are, especially in my generation of comedy, so many diverse voices. And that is not just racially diverse, not just diversity with LGBTQ, but diversity in people who grew up on a farm and people who grew up in the frozen north and people who were immigrants from other countries and all of these different people. And what I've always loved is trying to let each of them shine as bright as they can. And for me, in my role as a host, to just be the focal point that lets them pivot up to get as, as bigger 
an audience as they can. So even when I was making shows in Chicago, it was about, it doesn't matter if what you are saying in your piece is what I would say. It doesn't matter if it's my voice. It doesn't matter if it's an issue that affects me. It matters if it's funny and it's good and it means something to you. And if I can get you up there and then I can get someone behind you who isn't like either of us up there and we can bring up that kind of a diverse team, then that also means that when people are watching, so many people get to see a little bit of themselves represented. You know, I, all of us know, especially people of color, especially women, know what it's like to watch late night and be like, well, I kind of have to jump to that person's point of view. But it would also be cool if all of us got a little bit of like, hey, that's like me. They're talking like me. They know, they understand the subtext that I know. So my hope is to create a situation. And again, this is an incredibly, if you, like, if you look at the show we're doing now, I just interviewed Liz Hines, this writer from last week tonight, played the manager of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Uh, and she talked about how great the AMPTP's deals were. <laughs> uh, you know, so if you want a window into the kind of show I would make, it's like that. So it's, let, you know, letting her shine as a crazy woman from 100 years ago, you know. But, but I just believe that that's part of the, you know, I think networks and people are so interested in how do we get diversity, how do we get audiences. And it's what they don't realize is that for a lot of us, just going through our phone contacts list is diverse. I don't have to go search for a trans writer. I don't have to go search for someone who is Asian American. I just have friends who make comedy and I'll call them and they'll come on and do it. You know, it doesn't have to be this big focus group. I've been the black writer in the room many times where they were like, how do we find a second one? Oh gosh, where will they, where would they be? What are they doing? And it's like, oh, you could just ask me. I know a zillion, you know? So I think it's, it's, it's part of that, of that as we move forward. I want, I want to just be the setup guy. You know, because to me, when I watched Conan do that for so many years, that was so inspiring to me. Yeah, and I mean, do you think, like, have you seen in your experience the, the writer's room, like, is it becoming more inclusive? Like, it seems like it is, based on what you're saying. Yeah, I think it, it is slowly moving. I think it's, uh, it's also hard to get into late night. Um, there's a reason that, like, a lot of people in late night are, um, you know, upper class white people and you're like, what did your parents do? And they're like, oh, they were in the State Department or like, oh, they ran a bank. And you're like, oh, cool, cool. My dad uh, sold fertilizer. Uh, so I think um, because to sit back and learn how to write that precise joke thing, it, it helps if you have a cushion. And so you don't, but, but now we've developed more and more and more and things like Twitter have developed people's ability to write like that. So you do find more people and you are getting more diversity. I think it's, it's, so you're seeing that even in the voices of the shows, that even if they still have a white male host, I mean, John did a whole episode of last week tonight about black hair. I was there and, and wrote on it. But like, you know, like his willingness to say, uh, this isn't my, I don't know, but I'm going to go with it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I also feel like, and, you know, I love your insight on this. Like, John Oliver often will say, like, you know, he makes fun of, like, uh, what does he call it? Like, his, like, money daddy or what's? Business daddy, Business daddy, thank yeah. you. Um, and we'll often, you know, reference like we might get sued. Um, like, how much of that is real, and how much of that is like just a shtick? That's very a hundred percent real. Okay, that's uh, what because I was hoping thing, you would say. No, yeah, it's very real because um, rich people uh, get mad, and they don't. And <laughs> I mean, like, also you have to remember, like, if you're in that class in this country, no one is mean to you because everyone around you either works for you or is another rich person. So, like, there's no one talking to you to be like, hey, you kind of suck, man. And so if you say that a tiny bit, they get really mad, you know? And that's why politicians get, they get mad. Like, you think about the politicians out there that SNL makes a joke about them, and then they tweet about it, and they amplify it. And it's like, 
you got to let it go, but they don't. And then when they get really mad, yeah, it's like, we'll sue you, you know, luck, thank goodness, you know, there are free speech laws and laws that talk about, you know, fair use and, and parody and making fun of people like that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a thing where you are always aware of not just the joke, but is what I'm saying true? Because if it's not true, I think about, I worked on a show called Game Theory, which was a sports late night show. And, you know, and, and we're talking about things like nepotism in the NFL, you know, and, and, and there's a legal distinction. There's a distinction between I hired my son and I hired my college roommate. Both are hooking somebody up with a sweet deal, maybe if they're not qualified, but one is nepotism and one is not. So if we call them both nepotism, it's less true. And that hurts the joke because someone's going to hear the joke and go, actually, it's not. And now we're in a conversation about if it's true. So you're always thinking about, and is what I'm saying true and factual and able to be backed up so that the joke can be what shines? Man, I love that. I never, I never thought about that, but um, that's why you're here. <laughs> um, so I do want to give the audience some time for questions. Uh, so think, take a minute if you haven't already. Um, but before we get into that real quick, can I ask you about Radiant Plumbing? Were you a part of that? <laughs> No? I don't think I was. You weren't? Uh-oh. No, it's fine. Well, on last week tonight, they did a whole thing. So Radiant Plumbing is based in Austin. Okay. And they make these wild commercials. And John did a whole segment on like how amazing, because they're all like uh, themed to films, but about toilets. Ah, I know what this is. Yes. But uh, So let me explain why yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Go ahead, go ahead. Because when you are working on a last week tonight script... Because people come up to me and they're like, this one was so good. This one was so good. And I'm like, when I'm working on bankruptcy, I'm working on a bankruptcy script for two weeks, I don't know what's happening anywhere else. I disappear, and two weeks later, I'm like, here's a half-hour monologue. And so then other things are happening. The show's coming out, and I'm like, I was in a hole learning about, did you know that like corporate bankruptcy is actually different than, you know, than personal bankruptcy? And there's two kinds of personal bankruptcy. One is pretty good. One is not good, and you don't want to do it. And you're like, but like you're learning all this. Like I did it, and I was like, I gotta pay my student loans off right now. Like, <laughs> but you're deep in this hole, and then you come out, and people are like, look at all this stuff, and you're like, that's not where I was, man. <laughs> I was up till three o'clock trying to figure out how to make a joke about bankruptcy, you know. Well, I think probably what you learned about bankruptcy was more important than what we learned about radiant plumbing. So, um, all right, questions? Yes. Hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for doing this. I have an inside baseball question about packets. Um, what makes an effective packet? Uh, how do you find a balance between capturing the voice and tone of the show, but also having your showing your point of view as a comedian? What? How did you crack the code for your Colbert packet? What made that worth for you? That maybe while you were working previous packets, you were still figuring out. Uh, I think part of it was that it was my 14th packet. Yeah. So that, so because uh, if the way this works very briefly is that um, you, when you know enough people in late night or you get into the, the email circles or whatever, you'll find out that like it's a Monday and they go, hey, next Monday, they're, they're taking late night packets for, you know, Kimmel until next Monday. And then you get an email that's like, they want this, they want a page and a half of jokes, they want a sketch, they, wa they want whatever they want, which is new content that, would be like you were working on the show and you have about a week to write it. And many of us have jobs or kids or things like that. So now you have to find time to write something that that's, that's that good. And the thing was, I had done 14 of them, which meant I was very good at turning to my wife and saying, okay, I gotta go into what I called packet madness. 
And that meant that it was like I was, all I was going to do was the packet. And I knew in my head, okay, it's due Monday, so Sunday night it's going to be finished, which means Saturday night is going to be my third draft, which means Friday is going to be my second draft, which means Thursday is when I'm going to send it to my friends to get notes back for Saturday. And I had art so that as soon as I got it, I was like, and here I go. And if it's a long form, I'm going to look at three stories. I'm going to sit in the shower, figure out what story I want to talk about. So it, had, it was the second I got it, I could go into starting to generate the packet and knowing exactly what I was going to do so that the night before it was done and I could sleep on it and know it was good. So for me, that was huge. I think also in terms of nailing the voice of the show, there's two things. One is um, it's, it's, you have to watch the shows. You have to, even if all you do is watch the monologue, it's all online. It's like going back for the, go watch the last 20 monologues. What are the kind of jokes they do? What is the pattern? What kind of cultural references do they use? How long are they? How short are they? Do they use graphics? Do they not use graphics for punchlines? You know, those kinds of things. Are there sound effects? Do they use walkout bits? Do they turn to the announcer? All of that to know the show. That's what knowing the voice is. It's not just the, that we politically talk about this. It's all of those little things so that they read it and they go, it's like you already work here. You're hired. The other thing is I worked really hard with the Writers Guild East for two years to develop something that we called the uh, late night diversity code of conduct, which is to say that a bunch for two years, writers and head writers and hosts, there were conversations about what do we do with diversity in late night and with voice. And so there are lots of things in there, including things about not firing people for being a bad fit, which we all know what that is code for, AKA yep. being Brown. Uh, and, but also talking about things like the voice of the show and, and making clear to hosts and head writers that if you hire a staff of people of color, the voice of the show is going to move a little bit. And it is now incumbent on the host and the head writer to incorporate that as a positive into the show. So it is a mixed bag. But I would say you, you, you want to write something that you think could be on the show right now, but they are jokes that only you would write. That's really the big thing is all of us who write a lot of jokes in this room we all know the first two jokes that people are going to make about any of these headlines. What is the third one? What's the weird one? What's the one that we have? I will do a two and a half minute joke about Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible series and I'll go real deep into it. And it's like, I can tell you from working last week tonight, no one else was doing that. <laughs> I do want to hear that joke later. Um, other questions? Yes. Hey. Uh, um, thank you so much for have any like weird ways or practices that you were early on in your career like get better at writing because uh you know packet madness i kind of related to it because i got my first packet recently and i was like i'm frozen i don't know what to do yeah. here so uh what's your uh, what's your what's your weird practices and ways to uh, two things one is i made uh my own shows as many times as i could when i was in chicago we made a one hour long news hour called that just happened that was a Saturday night, midnight show that like five people came to, but we made an hour long show every week about the news. Three of the people from that show write in late night right now. Um, also the other, th and then I made uh, in the 2016 election, I made 30 minute comedy audio monologues, used news clips, made the, made essentially last week tonight episodes by myself. Then in, in 2020, uh, I made video monologues on my own. When I wasn't at a show, I just made my own stuff. The other thing I did for five years was every Friday night, I wrote 50 monologue jokes. Wow. So instead of going out, uh, I wrote 50 jokes. And the, the reason to do that is not because I was going to ever use those jokes. It's because 50 jokes shouldn't seem like a lot. It's that when it's that it should be that if I take if I take any four of you guys and I'm like, 
hey, uh, you have 90 minutes. Can I get 50 jokes each? You all go, okay, cool. Because I'm not asking them to be good. I'm asking for 50 because five will be good. And then, you know, and then I can build a show off that. So that was one of the big things for me was making yourself write volume on demand. There is no time. There is no writer's block in late night. It doesn't exist. So it's just about making yourself write on demand. It doesn't matter if it's good. It matters if it's written down. Were you married on these Friday nights? Like, what was your wife up to? Well, my wife is a flight attendant. <laughs> oh. So she was gone, and oh. I was writing jokes. That yeah. worked out. Yeah. That worked out. Okay. Other questions? I'm going to go back, and then I'll... Yes. Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by your theology degree and your desire to become a priest. And it kind of seems to me, you know, all this talking about diversity in the industry isn't really diverse as far as diversity of thought and belief. Elf seems to be one way. And so coming from a Christian background, is there, how do you see it? I mean, are those viewpoints considered because, you know, there's certain words that cannot be said. You cannot use the N-word, this word, that word. But you can use uh, in cursing the name of Jesus Christ or whatever and, and disparage uh, Christianity, which is a large part of this country. So it doesn't seem diverse for me. And so for you, coming from your background, I'm just wondering what... What it's really like. Am I pursuing yeah. wrong? Because that's what I feel. No, I, I want to give you a very honest answer, which is that um, I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm still Catholic. I went to Mass at 7.30 this morning at some church like a mile and a half away from here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it was 35 minutes long, and I was like, there we go. <laughs> Sunday Mass, 35 minutes, no music. That is how you do it, Texas. That was great. But, um, but I think the, the very cool thing for me as a person who is a rare, uh, you know, I don't know a lot of other Catholics who go to Mass every Sunday who work in late night. But the cool thing is that for all of them, they know one Catholic who goes to Mass every Sunday who is not an asshole. And that, to me, is, part, is a great way for me to share that we aren't all like that. My wife isn't like that. I'm not like that. My parents aren't like that. So a way to prove that those people exist. And so it's been an incredibly beneficial thing for me because it's also been able to bring a new perspective and, it's, and I've been able to use it in scripts and jokes and all sorts of things. Um, the, the first week I was at Colbert, they were like, you're coming with us to the Met Gala piece. And it was the Vatican Archives Met Gala piece. And I'm in the basement of the Met, me, Stephen, Anna Winter, her two assistants, one of whom just did coffee, and then two people from the Vatican. And I'm like, and they're like, we're glad you're here. And I'm like, yep, okay, cool, Vatican guys. And I'm like, I, I guess I know the names of things. So I think it just turns out, it's just a situation where it becomes an asset. But, but more than that, I think it's incumbent on me to, to be the reason that people can't say all of us are assholes. And that's my job, is what I consider as somebody who believes. I love that. I love that. Do you still have a question? Uh, sort of off of that, I was just, you were talking about, um, you know, this sort of traditional way of coming into late night and having the training and being able to do the writing and getting really granular with your jokes. Um, and now we have this new generation on Twitter, on TikTok, on whatever. Can you speak a little bit about when you guys, uh, or, or when, when staffing, if you find someone who is, say, like got a huge following on Twitter and you guys think, okay, this person's voice is great, we can translate. Like, what you're saying about kind of changing the form, right? I want to know about how the new voices that are coming into the room have to sort of assimilate to the late night model as it is, and how much the late night model is assimilating to the new voices. 
I think the 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 assimilation is a lot less about joke form, I think, than it is about um, the reference base of the person coming in. Also because I would never pick a late night writer based off their followers. It would be based solely on, like, you can have 10 followers, but if all the jokes are fire, all the shows will want to hire you. And that's the benefit of Twitter is, especially for late night writing, it's not about being famous. It's about someone found you and went, oh my gosh, all of these jokes are good consistently over the last year. And so those people come in, but then you, you do come into the form because I think um, there's been a lot of push and pull in television about bringing people over from social media. And I, there's a difference between bringing a brilliant writer who is just a brilliant writer, period, into television and having them television write versus taking someone who is popular on social media and trying to bring their popularity with them. I don't believe the latter works. So uh, the people who have come over, there are several of them on late night staffs who got found on Twitter. Those people, if you go back and scroll, they are just putting, this just fire jokes every time and they're quick two-liner jokes every time. And that it's just a revelation of talent, you know? Great question, thanks. Yes. Um, yeah, you mentioned research a bit and when you're given a packet, sometimes you're given just like a ton of research that you kind of just want to do it and take out your own, you craft your own essay like you said. Um, I'm wondering, it probably differs show to show, but like, do they just kind of give you as the writer carte blanche to come up with your own take, or are there like producers that are kind of guiding you towards a specific type of story? And how much research do you get like at the beginning of the day? You, you, uh, you can, it depends on the show. If it's a daily show, you're getting the basic rundown, and then as you're writing it, you're going, okay, well, and you're, at, you can, you're asking for facts, you're asking for details, even when you're doing a live show. You know, like you're trying to ask for like, was this thing in the State of the Union true or is it partially true? Like, I need to know. So you're getting that research. For the longer pieces, I mean, you're getting uh, 120 pages of research and, you know, about something like water rights. And you're like, well, I'm a comedian, so I don't, I'm not good at this part. But then, then so you have to take the time to read through. And as you're reading through, you're right, you're building the essay. You're going, I find this compelling and this compelling and this. And so then you've got 12, 15 data points and now you start. But the closer you get to being finished, then yes, that's when it starts to be shaped by the whole show. So you have an idea, you bring that to the table. Maybe the middle part of the argument that you did, we love and that comes in. But it is a mixture of your piece and then what the show ultimately creates out of an amalgam of everybody else's. Nice. Yes. So um, on Last Week Tonight, there's like sometimes like hilariously bizarre moments. Like I think about there was like a rat portrait, like erotica thing that happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in those moments, like has there been like, a favorite one that you've been involved with or like how do they kind of come about? Like sometimes they're just so bizarre but they work so well. Um, uh, man, I don't, I, there have been so many, I mean, <laughs> Richard Kind played a blobfish once, that was fun. Yep. No, there have been, there have been a lot, I think that, that any of those in any of the show, you can, you can feel the moment where you can tell that the host told the writers that they had free reign. I think you can, in any of the shows, you kind of feel it because you're like, it's very silly, it's very wacky. It might not be that funny. It's just very weird, but it's a big swing. And the host is like, well, they tried, you know? <laughs> but I think you, let, you need to do that sometimes as a release valve, especially when you're talking about stuff that's so serious, whether it's at, a, you know, a five night a week or once a week. You're talking about all these things that are, they are serious and they are dragging us down. And especially for the writers, the thing to consider is like, 
if we're talking about something sad like child separation at the border, you're watching a 30-minute piece full of jokes, but we're watching four hours of documentaries and reading 200 pages and hearing every single person cry. It's a, so you're just getting... It's so heavy, you know? And if you're doing a, a five-day-a-week show, you're, I watched every word Donald Trump said for the last two years of his presidency. Every rally, every speech, everything. It's all in here. Uh, and so, like, that stinks. So every so often... <laughs> Every so often, you need a release valve that's like, we're going to do something so dumb. And it's, it's, it's almost self-care, I think. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Boo. Sad. Um, thank you so much, Greg. This was really wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You. Maybe we'll see you back next year. Yeah, maybe. It'll be, be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit ATXFestival.com.